The American Zionist Council traced its roots to the American Zionist Emergency Council, formed in 1939 and led by Dr. Abba Hillel Silver, Stephen S. Wise, and Louis Lipsky. In 1944, their very first major lobbying initiative ended in disaster due to factionalism and Hillel's counterproductive pressures on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. The American Zionist Emergency Council was publicly positioned as a joint political action agency. Today, it would simply be called an umbrella organization. At that time, the American Zionist Emergency Council united 26 representatives from several key organizations. The Zionist Organization of America, Hadassah, the Women's Zionist Movement, Paul Zion, Zionist Workers, and Mizrachi, the Reform Movement. A summit was called at the American Zionist Emergency Council headquarters at 342 Madison Avenue, a few blocks from the U.N., The American Zionist Emergency Council was pushing hard for a Senate resolution calling for the U.S. to obtain free entry for Jews into Palestine and reaffirm the establishment of a Jewish commonwealth in Palestine. The Senate failed to pass the resolution on December 11, 1944, under the guidance of the U.S. State Department, which urged that passage, quote, at the present time would be unwise from the standpoint of the general international situation. The American Zionist Emergency Council suffered fallout as its leaders agonized over how hard to push for a tough U.S. line on Palestine with the United Kingdom. But few would take a soft line on the State Department from this time forward. Stephen Wise was opposed to pressing the resolution on tactical grounds and cautioned patients for a more auspicious moment. After the resolution failed, the council fell to squabbling, alternatively calling for a censure of Hillel and the resignation of all executives to clear the way for new leadership. The wise and silver factions generally opposed the confrontational approach of pressing both the United Kingdom and the United States, favored by Hillel. As an elite umbrella organization, the American Zionist Emergency Council was only functional as long as key fundraisers and donors were convinced of its cause, leadership, and effectiveness. Donors found Hillel's use of threats too abrasive and unprofessional to secure results. Abraham Feinberg clarified the new approach, saying, I was dissatisfied with the routes that the Jewish organized community was using through the Zionist organization, in presenting its case to the president or the secretary of state. I felt that the use of threatened pressure was not going to be productive. Questioner. You felt that many of the organizations were using this tactic? Feinberg. Yes, they were, largely because the leader of the Zionist movement at the time in America was a Republican by the name of Dr. Abba Hillel Silver, who was a rabbi a very arrogant, brilliant speaker, and a despotic type of leader. He was a very close friend of Senator Robert Taft, and so his innate feelings toward Roosevelt were inimical. I felt he was directing the whole movement in the wrong way, and if one could establish a man-for-man relationship with the president, and then subsequently the Secretary of State, you could reason things out without threatening. Any president worth his salt will not respond to political blackmail, said Feinberg. 
Kennan also reflected that Hillel might have actually set the Zionist cause back with his incessant finger-wagging at both Roosevelt and Truman. Kennan said, On the one hand, there were the State Department Arabists, the anti-Zionists, both Jews and non-Jews, the oil and defense lobbies, which always influenced FDR, and the missionaries, who regarded Jews as interlopers. On the other hand, there were overwhelming pressures from the Zionists. Like FDR, Truman cordially welcomed the flexible Stephen Wise, but he was furious when the inflexible Abba Hillel Silver pressured him for recognition, demanding an affirmative reply as he pointed his finger at Truman's face as he was wont to do with adversaries, and as he did when he and Wise met FDR with a similar demand a few days earlier, said Kennan. In 1946, the American Zionist Council's predecessor suffered additional blows from the U.S. State Department. Kennan and other lobby leaders would see this as cause for discrediting and seeking the elimination of State Department influence on all matters concerning Palestine and later Israel. Building a unified movement in the U.S., able to take direction, funding, and coordination from Israel, but defensible as a purely American lobby, was the core proposition of APAC, and it began in earnest in 1951. There was much work to do. Kennan found out personally that while Truman continued to be an ally, he still resisted the lobby's core public relations issue frames, as he had in the 1948 Declaration of Recognition. Most importantly, the references to a Jewish state against a subtle background of divine intervention. Truman subsequently downplayed his unique individual role in Israel's creation. Kennan labored mightily to put the proper doctrine into Truman's mouth, saying, President Truman stressed the extent of public support in a 1952 speech to a Jewish audience in New York. The sponsoring organization had asked me to suggest a text. I take great pride in the fact that I was selected by destiny to be the first to recognize the new Jewish state, I wrote. I doubt whether Truman ever saw that draft, for his speech bore no resemblance to it. On the contrary, he almost seemed to be arguing with me when he declared, I take no special credit for recognizing the state of Israel on the day it was born. I did what the people of America wanted me to do, wrote Kennan. By 1952, the American Zionist Council was positioning itself with Kennan's vital expertise as the public relations arm of the Zionist movement. The council touted itself as uniting and tapping political and financial support from the largest and most powerful Zionist organizations in the United States. The reality was somewhat less grandiose and seamless, given the different organizational objectives, leadership, and overlapping areas of concern. Uniting and exerting influence was contentious and not always successful. Kennan lamented the turf wars that greeted his arrival as a lobbyist, writing, I encountered many difficulties. There was Elihu Stone of Boston, a veteran of the Zionist Council staff, stationed in Washington. He strongly resented my coming to Washington to supersede him. He argued that I was a public relations council and contended that I should do my job in New York rather than on his beat. There was some resentment in the Israeli embassy because diplomatic corps led by Elihu Eliot and Moshe Karen contended that they could do it all by themselves and that I was an intruder. In addition, there was Hadassah, which inspired and assisted me for many years. 
But Denise Torover, who represented Hadassah in Washington, insisted that she knew Washington much better than I did, and she constantly complained to the New York Hadassah leadership that I was an interloper. To sum up all my difficulties, I was the unwanted man. Karen and Stone did not want me in Washington working for the American Zionist Council. Unger did not want me in New York because that was his turf. But the adamant Lipsky did not want me to have anything to do with the embassy. He wanted the job done by the American Zionist Council, wrote Kennan. This all began shaping up when harsh new orders came in from abroad and the squabbling heads were cracked together. On November 23, 1952, former Jewish agency executive, now Prime Minister, David Ben-Gurion met with leaders of the four major American Zionist groups in Jerusalem. On the table was the issue of how to transfer important activities from the Jewish agency, the executive arm of the World Zionist Organization, to the American Zionist Council. This move was meant to bolster the appearance of indigenous American control. Ben-Gurion's vision was for an all-embracing territorial federation with which individuals or groups, such as synagogue congregations, could affiliate themselves. Ben-Gurion's overall objective was to remove the legal and organizational barriers to the growth of Zionism, and the final resolution of the conference vastly broadened the functions of the American Zionist Council. By design, the Jewish Agency's U.S. subsidiary, the American Section in New York, would now, quote, confine its activities to control of fund campaigns, economic activities, and purchasing, unquote. The American Zionist Council would drive forward with establishing a definitive plan for structuring itself, coordinating subtle and effective public relations, and its most important tasks, broader grassroots and executive-level lobbying in support of Israel. By 1954, the new American Zionist Council leader, Rabbi Irving Miller, had entered his second term as executive director of the organization. Miller largely replaced the combative Hillel finger-wagging approach with expert public relations firepower. The council was also gathering funding and other resources to execute a formal plan to, quote, enlarge its activities here, unquote. In 1954, the American Zionist Council proclaimed a total constituent organization membership of 750,000. The lead organizations under the American Zionist Council umbrella continued to be Hadassah and the Zionist Organization of America. But Ben-Gurion's mandatory reorganization had not revoked the Foreign Agent Registration Act, and the American Zionist Council soon ran into trouble. Kennan regarded his ascension to the American Zionist Council in 1951 as the true beginning of APAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, as he wrote in his chapter, We begin to lobby. In private, Kennan made no pretense that this lobbying was in any way related to American interests, writing, The lobby for Israel, known as the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, APAC, since 1959, came into existence in 1951. It was established at that time because Israel needed American economic assistance. As mentioned, by the early 1950s, Kennan had crafted and implemented the American Zionist Council's new public relations issue framework. This framework had been further refined by APAC and is still in widespread use today. Rabbi Miller voiced it aloud in 1954. 
though he clumsily revealed that it was, in fact, a public relations strategy to change American public opinion. He made this during an introspective meta-analysis gaffe Kennan himself rarely committed. The American Zionist Council and its constituent organizations were now publicly pursuing American interests. Rabbi Miller underscored the Council's need of informing public opinion of the greatest issues which are at stake for America and for our way of life in Israel's struggle to build a secure, progressive, and democratic society in the Middle East. Blurring the distinctions between Judaism and Zionism and anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism was also a keystone for Israel lobby issue framing. In the background of every battle over policies to benefit Israel loomed the prospect that opponents would face a barrage of charges of anti-Semitism fired by lobbyists purposefully blurring the line, as Joe Stork and Sharon Rose lamented in 1974. They wrote, The fight against anti-Semitism can be carried out first and foremost by being absolutely clear about the difference between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, between Judaism and Zionism. The Zionist establishment wishes to blur those differences every time it serves their purposes. Therefore, Zionist interests are served every time that distinction is not made. While the issue reframing was underway in early 1952, Kennan became nervous. Would his continued contact and receipt of funds from the Israeli government create problems at the Department of Justice? The Ferris section was presumably still waiting for his personal declaration as a private sector public relations consultant to Israel. This issue was made all the more urgent since the nascent Israel lobby's greatest benefactor, President Truman, was on his way out. Kennan's lobby was among the first to receive this privileged and vital information from Abraham Feinberg, who consulted directly with the president. Feinberg was carefully observing Truman in 1952 and was among the very first to realize he would not be running for re-election. He was so close to Truman that he functioned as a kind of press secretary to reporters in Washington on the crucial issue of re-election, as noted in Feinberg's 1998 New York Times obituary, which stated, In the political world, he led many Democratic fundraising drives. His family said he played an important role in providing financial support for President Harry S. Truman's successful whistle-stop campaign for re-election in 1948. In 1952, while the country was waiting to see whether President Truman would run again, Mr. Feinberg visited him at the White House and then told reporters the president had not made up his mind. In the end, Truman running for re-election was only wishful thinking, and his departure temporarily suspended Israel's special direct access to the White House. For Kennan, the danger of exposure and legal liability under Farah intensified exponentially once Truman left office. In late 1951 through early 1952, Kennan's activities in Israel and return to the U.S. proceeded quietly. Then, on February 29, 1952, the New York Times broke a short story detailing his movements in Israel and the U.S. titled, I.L. Kennan in Zionist Unit Post. It read, The appointment of I.L. Kennan, former director of information for the Jewish Agency in Palestine, as a Washington representative of the American Zionist Council, the public relations arm of Zionist groups in the country, was announced yesterday by Louis Lipsky, chairman of the council. Mr. Kennan, who had also served as director of information of the Israel delegation to the United Nations, recently returned from Israel. 
The Farah section actively monitored the media and filed relevant press clippings in its central files. Kennan had to respond. On March 14, 1952, Kennan wrote a convoluted letter to the Farah section about his employment at the American Zionist Council, still without revealing any Israel lobbying activity. In it, he stated that he had joined, then temporarily resigned from the American Zionist Council for a precise period between October 1951 and January 1952. During that short time, he had visited Israel and received money from the Israeli government, only to return and pick up the reins of the American Zionist Council. He disclosed no material details about his actual activities in Israel. Kennedy did reveal how urgent he felt it was to establish on record that since he was not sending propaganda back to the United States during this trip, he should not be required to file as a foreign agent. Kennan wrote, At the onset, I'd like to refer you to my letters of February 13, 1951, in which I advised you of my receipts and expenses in connection with personal services rendered to the government of Israel prior to February 14, 1951. Following that date, I took a position with the American Zionist Council. That appointment expired in October 1951. On November 1951, I went with my wife to Israel as guests of the government of Israel. I was not an employee of the government of Israel. However, the government of Israel did pay for my passage and also a sum to cover expenses, amounting to approximately $2,518 calculating Israeli pounds at the tourist rate. During this trip to Israel, I did not publish or transmit to the United States any documents, printed or propaganda material, whatever. In January 1952, after returning from my trip to Israel, I again reverted to the American Zionist Council, where I am presently employed. I do not believe this is required to be filed under the Foreign Agents Registration Act, but am submitting this information to you to avoid any possible question. Lacking relevant details of Kennan's actual lobbying activities, the chief of the Ferris section, William E. Foley, 1911-1990, responded that if Kennan was not engaged in propaganda, there would be no need to file. Fatefully, Foley did not ask about Kennan's specific contacts or the substance of the meetings with Israeli government officials. If he had, he would have discovered that Kennan did not need to send any propaganda back to the United States, The United States, in the form of key members of Congress, went to Israel to receive it. During his trip, Kennan had been formally tasked by the Israeli government with lobbying and fading these members of the United States Congress on Israel's behalf. Perhaps tellingly, the Department of Justice did file Kennan's March 14 letter with all of Kennan's previous foreign agent registrations. Decades later, Kennan presented his leadership role in the American Zionist Council as seamless and uninterrupted, writing, Between 1951 and 1953, I had been the Washington representative of the American Zionist Council, a tax-exempt organization, he wrote. In Kennan's shorter, final, personal account, published by Near East Research in 1985, He asserted that the Israeli sponsorship of the trip was an inadvertent diversion and that he had actually intended to initiate immigration. The trip was undertaken just after Israel won an unprecedented aid package from the U.S. Congress worth over half a billion dollars in today's dollars. According to Kennan, when Congress adjourned, I resigned my post with the American Zionist Council and Bebe and I flew to Israel to see how the $65 million was going to be spent. But we had another reason. 
When I became a member of the Israeli UN delegation, I agreed to go aliyah, settle in, to Israel after my work at the UN had ended. Moreover, I wanted to perfect my Hebrew and enter an ulpan school for that purpose. I was traveling at my own expense, and so Bebe and I had to get a modest room at the Mariah Hotel. This was a cooperative run by eight Yugoslavians, five men and three women, who came there in 1948, wrote Kennan. Reading between the lines of his two autobiographical accounts, it seems likely that Kennan did dream of becoming a permanent citizen resident of Israel, which probably contributed to his recklessness in filing deceptive Farah declarations. If he had permanently left the U.S., it would not have mattered much. But reality and the ongoing need to lobby the U.S. Congress soon dissipated his lifelong dream of life in Israel. Kennan was also joined in Israel by U.S. congressmen eager to be fated with a victory lap for their efforts winning foreign aid on Capitol Hill. Kennan was drafted by the Israeli government to conduct them on tours and pass out favors. His government handlers and Kennan, no doubt, realized that his maximum future value could only be achieved if he returned to Washington. If Kennan had honestly disclosed his activity in Israel with members of Congress to the Farah section, they probably would have recognized it for what it was, a massive lobbying junket paid for by a foreign principal. Much later, Kennan details how he became aware not only that there wasn't enough free cash flow in Israel to properly finance street signs, but he was probably becoming too old to serve as an official diplomat for Israel. He wrote, but I was not the only visitor to Israel to find out how Israel intended to use the $65 million. Congressmen, naturally, were interested. On December 6th, the Israel Foreign Ministry called to tell me that I must leave the Ulpan to meet with a delegation consisting of representatives Fugate and Barrett, members of the House Banking and Finance Committee, who were part of an official subcommittee checking on loans made by the Export-Import Bank. That was just the beginning! Many more congressmen were scheduled to arrive, for there was widespread doubt that Israel could survive. Seller was first, and I escorted him around Jerusalem and its historic shrines. Javits kept me busy for the next 18 hours. He had another project. His mother, Ida Littman Javits, was born in Safed. I went to Safed to urge the mayor, Rabbi Podhoritz, father of the editor of Commentary, to name a street after her. He demurred because, he explained, there was no budget for street signs. Safed used the alphabet instead of street signs. In Jerusalem, I asked the Israel Foreign Ministry to paint the sign, but it too demurred. There was no money, either for signs or paint. I promised to pay the bill. During ensuing weeks, I continued to escort visiting congressmen. Ribikoff, Fugate, Keating, O'Toole, Barrett, and Fine. It soon became evident to me that I could be more useful in Washington than in Israel. Moreover, I became aware that youthful diplomats were being trained in Israel for overseas assignments. What would become of me? So Bebe and I returned to Washington, and I resumed my work on Capitol Hill, Kennan wrote. The trip had a major impact on visiting members of Congress, who toughened their line about supporting Israel upon returning to the U.S. 
When Democratic Representative Emanuel Seller of Brooklyn returned to New York, he immediately began deploying standard cannon and lobbying talking points in a sharp denunciation of the United Nations. He also charged that the UN mediator for Palestine, Dr. Ralph Bunch, was taking orders veiled as suggestions from the U.S. State Department. Seller failed to make common cause with Truman's consular appointee to Israel and erstwhile ally John McDonald. He charged McDonald with taking direction from the United Nations, since he also functioned as the chairman of the United Nations Truce Commission and had a role requiring correspondence with Arab states. Seller declared, I shall make it my studied purpose to keep him out of Israel and the Near and Middle East, if not out of service. As one of the original proponents of the Foreign Agents Registration Act, Seller was an invaluable ally to the Zionist cause, Israel, and Isaiah Kennan. Seller is famously quoted as stating that the intention of Farah was to be a pitiless spotlight of publicity, but he never pressured his own army of Israel lobby supporters to register and subject themselves to that spotlight. Seller's double standard included issuing humorless, offhand death threats to effective dissidents, as Rabbi Elmer Berger and Lessing Rosenwald experienced during a 1944 House Committee on Foreign Affairs session. Berger noted years later, By 1944, we anti-Zionists were a vocal presence at most of the forums where political future of Palestine was discussed. We testified at hearings held by the House Committee on Foreign Affairs. The hearings were inspired by a Zionist resolution requesting American support for an effort to ease immigration restrictions imposed by the 1939 British White Paper. We supported the appeal on purely humanitarian grounds, but argued vigorously against the Zionist addendum urging endorsement of a Jewish commonwealth, which was the real purpose of the joint resolution for which all the hearings were held. It was a stormy session. The House Committee was fairly evenly divided, and the Zionist witnesses were as nervous as the proverbial cats. After our witnesses had finished their testimony, and Mr. Rosenwald and I were standing at the elevator in the House office building, waiting to leave, Emanuel Seller, a congressman from New York and committed Zionist, came by. He said, They ought to take you bastards out and shoot you. Despite Seller's and his own best intentions, Kennan's move from employee of the Israeli government to stealth lobbyist did not go entirely unnoticed by the U.S. State Department. The Israel trip was a legal exposure he needed to quickly paper over at the Ferris section. After returning from Israel, Kennan also came under growing scrutiny and challenges from Ferris' former enforcement agency. Kennan noted, Now we heard that the State Department was busily comparing my critical 1953 memoranda with those circulated by the Israeli embassy. Shouldn't Kennan register as an agent of a foreign government? A desk officer indignantly demanded of an Israeli journalist, Elihu Salpeter of Haaretz, who called me to sound the alarm. Kennan would enjoy many similar tidbits of timely inside intelligence and warning from foreign and U.S. sources when threats to his lobbying initiatives gathered. But the U.S. State Department, no longer in charge of enforcement, could do very little. Even in the face of such alarms, Kennan's American Zionist Council lobbying was beginning to pay huge dividends. On February 27, 1952, the U.S. agreed to sell weapons to Israel, partly as a result of Kennan's ongoing Capitol Hill lobbying for arms that began while he was still on the payroll of the Israeli government's information office. 
However, Kennan's slipping the restraints of Farah oversight did not prevent Eisenhower administration officials from detecting the pressures emanating from his growing stealth grassroots lobby. The Department of Justice Internal Security Division began compiling a file on American Zionist Council activities and financial operations. The Eisenhower administration then privately threatened to crack down, leading to a crisis at the American Zionist Council, as chronicled by Kennan. Kennan wrote, Then, late in December 1953, a Republican member of our executive committee who worked in Washington told our committee that I might be a target. Beyond the issue of failing to file a FARA registration, a glaring violation was that the American Zionist Council operated within a category of nonprofit corporations that was subject to strict limitations on the amount of time its employees were permitted to lobby members of Congress. Devoting most of its time and resources to lobbying with tax-exempt funds was unlawful, then as it is now. The Eisenhower administration attention also threatened exposure of the American Zionist Council's undisclosed activities as its grassroots lobbying pressures began challenging the administration's regional strategic and peace initiatives. Kennan reflected upon the American Zionist Council's resolution to its tax-exempt problems. Our acrimonious clashes with the Eisenhower Dulles regime over arms and water led to rumors that the American Zionist Council faced investigation. The rumors were ill-founded, but they were persistent and could not be ignored. We reorganized and established a lobbying committee, the forerunner of the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, APAC. Between 1951 and 1953, I had been the Washington representative of the American Zionist Council, a tax-exempt organization. A government agency had ruled that only an insubstantial portion of AZC funds had been used for lobbying. Kennan and the administration quietly came to an agreement that the American Zionist Council would no longer lobby with tax-exempt funds. Kennan then incorporated yet another Israel lobbying front group. It had all of the same donors and officers, but now operated under the pretext that because no further tax-deductible contributions were to be used for lobbying, it was a legitimate operation in spite of Farah. He wrote, Nevertheless, because of the possibility that we might be subject to attack, we organized a new and separate lobbying committee in 1954, independent of AZC control and financing, and thus impervious to challenge. It was named the American Zionist Committee for Public Affairs, AZCPA. There was no change in leadership or membership, but we stopped receiving tax-exempt funds from the AZC. Instead, we solicited contributions which would not be deductible from income tax. The overriding issue of FARA registration, the AZC's true foreign principle, using Israeli funds transferred from the Jewish agency into the United States, was thus successfully delayed for an entire decade. Not until the early 1960s would the Senate begin to investigate whether U.S. aid sent overseas and other funds were being secretly laundered back into the U.S. to obtain political influence and additional foreign aid. In 1963, a close examination of Isaiah Cannon's financing revealed that this was indeed happening. This investigation was prompted by a crescendo of calls for enforcement made to the Department of Justice by the American Council for Judaism. The American Zionist Council faced highly vocal internal opposition in attempting to unite disparate Jewish relief-oriented groups into a more unified and dependable bloc lobbying for Israel-oriented legislation. 
This even led founder Louis Lipsky to threaten to resign, as it was, quote, impossible to cope with the confusions and functions and authority that prevail in the Zionist movement in the United States, unquote. He cited lack of coordination among constituent organizations of the American Zionist Council, which took stands on issues affecting the Zionist cause without consulting the other council members or giving them an opportunity to weigh initiatives in relation to the Zionist program as a whole. One of the most powerful opposition voices continued to be Rabbi Elmer Berger, executive vice president of the American Council for Judaism, who feared that the work of Kennan and others would, quote, envelop American Jews in political blocks, unquote. In particular, Berger was worried that the Zionist character of the Zionist movement around the cause of Israel would break with the, quote, universal ethical and moral principles, unquote, of Judaism. Berger also felt that the militant Zionism would reverse the integration of Jews into society and rekindle self-segregation. He wrote, It is precisely enjoyment of liberty and the successful integration of Jewish communities that pose today's central problem of the Jewish people. Berger felt that these were painful but necessary questions that needed to be openly debated even after the creation of Israel, writing that we persist in raising these questions and suggesting answers, as does the Zionist mechanism, does not mean that we are opposed to Israel, even if we are opposed to many answers to these unresolved questions offered by the Israel-Zionist mechanism. This threat to the enormous public relations value of the concept that Cannon and other Israel lobby groups somehow represented American Jews had been around since before statehood. In 1945, Lessing J. Rosenwald sternly dismissed as propaganda the idea that in spite of public mobilizations, quote, all Jews are united in support of the Zionist plan to establish Jews as a nation and make Palestine a Jewish commonwealth, unquote. The press covered it fully, and for Kennan, excruciatingly, Rosenwald said, this is simply not true. No one possesses the authority or the right to speak in the name of all Americans of Jewish faith. In behalf of the American Council for Judaism, an organization of Americans of Jewish faith who oppose Jewish nationalism, refuse to participate in a political organization of Jews, and oppose the creation of a Jewish state, we call attention to the divergence of opinions among Jews on this subject. We draw public attention to our program, which seeks to maintain the only identity of Jews as individual adherents of a Jewish religion. We seek one thing only for Jews, a status of equality of rights and obligations throughout the world, he said. On the subject of the status of Palestine, in 1945, the American Council for Judaism urged aid without discrimination or privileged status conferred on any. Its position was, we favor the earliest possible acquisition of self-government in Palestine in which all Muslims, Christians, and Jews fulfilling the requirements of citizenship shall participate equally. We deem it particularly important to draw attention to the fact that an overwhelming body of American Jews who hold this view by virtue of their principles as Americans of Jewish faith. We reject all these self-appointed spokesmen who presume to make their partisan claims in the name of all Americans of the Jewish faith. 
Clearly, as the leading spokesmen and advocates for the newly created state, Kennan and the Zionist movement leaders had to deal with the American Council for Judaism. But the American Zionist Council could never credibly unleash their most potent weapon, insinuating that opposition leaders were anti-Semitic against the American Council for Judaism. Indeed, the American Council for Judaism even turned the table by calling out groups and surrogates of the American Zionist Council, who smeared legitimate American opponents with that label. Rabbi Elmer Berger exposed the lobby's smear tactic, targeting U.S. and government institutions charged with foreign policy in a lengthy 1953 speech. Berger said, The logic of Zionist-Israeli contention that the national interests of Zionism in Israel, on the one hand, and of the United States, on the other hand, are inseparable and the same, is wearing thin. Increasing numbers of Americans wonder about the 40 million people in that area. The Zionist-Israeli axis is attempting to isolate the Department of State from the Eisenhower administration and the American people, as the Zionist campaign in England for a decade attempted to isolate the British Foreign Office. American Foreign Service officers and other Americans who know there are more states in the Middle East than Israel. Bergert contended that these State Department officials had been labeled as anti-Semites by Zionists. He went on to reject the notion that such views could not be expressed in public. We have rejected not only the theory but the practice of medievalism, which regards Jews as some kind of exclusive fraternity with family linen on public issues which should not be washed in public. This kind of fantastic medieval logic can serve only, as it has, to support the medieval suspicion that Jews are precisely such a fraternity, he wrote. Berger also lamented the transformation of Jewish relief organizations that fought to prevent, quote, infraction of the civil and religious rights of Jews in any part of the world, quote, into Zionist apologists for and defenders of the national aspirations of the state of Israel. In his signature lobbying bulletin, the Near East Report, Kennan would labor mightily to minimize the ACJ as a mere fringe group. But Kennan's minimization of his opponent's power was soon debunked by events. The American Zionist Council's corporate entity would be destroyed by the American Council for Judaism, when Berger and others took their case directly to the Department of Justice to force the American Zionist Council to register as an agent of a foreign power in the early 1960s. 